You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible to Daniel chapter seven. Thank you, Josh, praise team musicians for leading us, preparing us for worship in the word. I've chosen this passage because I need it. As I look in the culture and I get discouraged and sometimes I get a little fearful, sometimes I get a little bitter, and what do we do as God's people when that happens? We renew our minds in the Word of God because that's where the reality resides. It's not on the news stations. There's no fake news in the Word of God. And so we are coming to Daniel chapter 7 to see a clear picture, an unveiling of ultimate reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you that you have saved us. And we thank you that you have revealed your purposes and plans in the inerrant, infallible word of God. And we thank you for Daniel 7. Father, there's a lot there And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give grace to this preacher to unpack it in a manner that is faithful to your purpose in inspiring it, as Daniel wrote it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in March 2017, I had arrived in Haiti. I had gone there several times in, in a few years span to teach some of the Haitian pastors. But this time when I arrived in Port-au-Prince, I I gave the customs official the customs declaration card that you have to fill out on an international flight. And one of the questions was the address of the destination. Well, in this particular case, I did not know the address. I was being picked up at the airport And he said, well, do you have a phone number? Unfortunately, I didn't have a phone number for the destination I was going either. And so he said, I'm going to have to take your passport until you have an address. So here I am in Port-au-Prince, not the friendliest airport if you've ever been there, not, not the safest country. And my proof of citizenship was not honored. Moreover, they took my suitcase. They wouldn't even let me have my suitcase. And so uh, I frantically ran outside the gate looking for the people who were going to pick me up. They were not there. So here I was, uh, separated from my homeland. Uh, I had no credentials. I had no possessions. And I sat there in fear and frustration for 45 minutes. But then I pulled out my cell phone and I looked at the email from the ministry that I was going to be going to, Baptist Haiti Mission. And I noted these words in the email, we are coming to get you. And faith in that organization, they had never betrayed me. Uh, They had always honored their promises to me. Faith in their promise reoriented my perspective, one that had gotten very frustrated and uptight. 
Hope began to rule. I realized that what I was experiencing at that moment was not ultimate. It was not going to last. They were coming for me. And they did. And I got my passport back and my suitcase back. Now, think about God's people in Daniel's era. They're in exile. They're in a foreign land. And they have lost far more than a passport. Fundamentally, they've lost everything. They've lost their vocations. They've lost their possessions. In many cases, they've lost all of their family. How can they have any hope with such loss? Well, Daniel is going to encourage them by reminding them that though their trials are real, though their trials are painful, the Ancient of Days is sovereign, and the Son of Man will ultimately will bring deliverance. And we see that in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel 7 has been called one of the summits of the Scripture, one of the mountain peaks of Scripture. Um, in chapters 1 to 6, we, we see the struggle of the people of God as they're trying to live in a land opposed, a very difficult place, a land opposed to God. And now, in chapter 7, God just kind of pulls back the curtain and we see the re real issues behind the struggle. Daniel 7 is an example of what is known as the apocalyptic genre, uh, which means the unveiling. And that's what's happening. Uh, God is pulling back the curtain. He is unveiling ultimate reality. It's an unveiling of God's sovereign rule in spite of what the present circumstances might lead you to believe. Amen. That's why we need this passage tonight. But it begins with an inglorious vision. So look with me in verse 1. Now, we're going to go through this whole thing, and we're going to get out on time, so I can't scuba dive. I've, kind of, I've got a water ski rather than scuba dive through this passage, all right? But we see this inglorious vision in verses 1 to 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and so Babylon is now the, the, the world leader, the ruler, is Belshazzar, Belshazzar, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, the sea in the Israelite mind symbolized utter chaos and evil. And so when you see this language of sea, that's why in Revelation, John says, I saw no more sea. All right? So it symbolized chaos. And that's why it's so important to see that the Lord, Yahweh, not only created and owns the sea, but he controls and subdues and limits it. Indeed, there are texts like Psalm 18, verse 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. 
And so God is sovereign even over the chaos. In verse 4, the first, so these four beasts came up out of the sea, different one from one another, and the, the first was like a lion. Uh, so these are three beasts we're going to read here, first of all, and they are beasts of prey, all of them, which means they are dangerous to humans. One was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man in the mind of a man was given to it. And so there's some real troubling features about these beasts, which no doubt would have provoked a strong reaction uh, to the Israelites. Why? Well, the creation story. That's why um, God made in Genesis 1 the various components of creation according to their kind, according to their nature. The Israelites got that. A lot of Americans don't get that these days. But notice this first beast is like a lion um, and had eagle's wings. Now, this is clearly Babylon. Babylon was the present ruler, and Belshazzar was the king. They looked ultimate. They looked like they were completely sovereign over all things. Um, but in ancient Near Eastern literature, their symbol was a lion with eagle's wings. And so that clearly represents Babylon. But notice the second beast we read about in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. What does that mean? It means it wasn't fasting, all right? Um, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Um, now, this represents the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the three ribs picture the three major kingdoms that were conquered by the Mede Persians, uh, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And so it's clear this is the Mede Persians. Well, notice the third beast. After this, verse 6, after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So it had four wings and four heads, which suggest it was fast and it had universal sovereignty. Four heads looking in all directions. This is Greece. So um, Alexander the Great's kingdom, in fact, was divided by four generals. But I want you to understand something as well. The impact of this vision does not depend on us knowing exactly who and what the beast represent. That's important to understand in apocalyptic literature. That would assume that the rule of the beast that we read here describes the way the world used to be and not the way it is. But this describes world history, even if it is obviously 
focusing on four particular, or three in this particular case, four kingdoms. The fourth one will be will come in verse seven. So Daniel seven, as I just said, is actually telling us that this is the way life will be in a broken and fallen world for the people of God until the consummation. But then comes the fourth beast. And this beast is the most terrifying of all. Notice in verse seven. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Notice this, it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. Now I believe in the main, this represents Rome, but I don't identify it completely with ancient Rome because Daniel emphasizes this fourth beast in a way that cannot be ultimately categorized. So it includes Rome, um, but we also need to understand that this is the last human kingdom, the one in which evil will reach its summit. And let me give you a few reasons for that. For one, Rome, I believe, is the last kingdom mentioned because it was the last empire to rule the known world. Secondly, Rome is the last kingdom because something happened when Rome um, was the empire for the world. And what was that? Daniel 2 tells us a stone that would become a great mountain came, and that stone is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Rome was the empire when Jesus was born into the world. Third, the greatest problem with identifying this solely with Rome is that what we read in chapter 7 uh, is the complete destruction of evil. Well, two and a half millennia later, we still haven't seen the dis complete destruction of evil, and Rome has long been uh, ex exterminated as, as, as a, a world power. Uh, fourth, there, was, there weren't 10 kings uh, in Rome. There were 60 kings. And this fourth beast, I think, is greater than the ancient Rome because with the fourth beast... It's like something we, we can't imagine. Notice the language, uh, the, the, the language of being different. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. Verse 7, it's different in the terror it brings. It's described as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Uh, it's different in the havoc that it brings. Uh, devoured, notice the language of, being, of devouring and breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. And it's different in its power. It has 10 horns, horns representing power and sovereignty. It's also different in the ruler that it produces. Notice in verse eight, I considered the horns, that is the 10 horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. 
So this very well could be specifically referring to Titus, the Roman general who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. But I also believe that it's a type of something and someone more sinister. The one John would describe in 1 John 2.8 as the Antichrist. Or in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. But as we get fixated on this figure, and that's what the news does. They get us fixated on all the bad news, all right? And that's not what Scripture wants us to do here. The text is now going to transition not to these earthly thrones, but to another throne. And that brings us to the glorious unveiling of this passage, the unglorious unveiling of the Ancient of Days. God is pulling back the curtain so that we don't get discouraged when we read the paper and watch the news. Look with me in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. What does that mean? That means he sits enthroned. He's the one that's sovereign. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is where we get that language of ancient of days that we sing about. We sang about it this morning. This is the ancient of days. This does not mean he was feeble. I took Seth Friday to my, one of my old strength coaches, Rocky Coleman, took him to his house to put him through a workout, and uh, Rocky hasn't seen me in 30 years, and he described me as feeble. <laughs> we get a little old, we get feeble. Well, the Ancient of Days doesn't get older, all right? He's not feeble. What it means, he's not a novice. That's what it means. Um, but what is the goal? Think about this. What is the goal of all earthly kingdoms? To endure. What is he being called here? The Ancient of Days. These beasts, as terrifying as they may appear, are transitory before the Ancient of Days. All right? That's a word to us. And what is this communicating to us, this, this passage here about the Ancient of Days? First of all, God is showing us sanity in the midst of insanity. As Brother Al has often said, there's no panic in heaven, just plans. There's one who sits enthroned. He took his seat. He sits. He doesn't stress because he's the one who sees ultimate reality. Secondly, notice his anger. This is a righteous anger. And the anger of God is the hope of God's people. His throne was fiery flames. So fire signifies judgment. His presence in judgment. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And, and these wheels display he is mobile. He is omnipresent. 
Location is not a problem for him. All right? No matter where you are in the world. Third, notice his glory and majesty. A thousand thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Now, that's not exact numbers. It's incalculable. That's what Daniel is saying. It can't be numbered. And this would have been encouraging to Daniel. Why would this have been encouraging to Daniel? How often had Daniel stood alone for God? How often had he been the one, the only one, who stood alone for God. And now he beholds a place where there are tens of thousands worshiping the Ancient of Days. He's not alone. And that's actually Daniel's home. In Babylon, he's just a foreigner. And there he is being shown he'll never be alone again. He may stand in the minority now, but isolation is just for a time. Boy, that's a, a good illustration to the passage we looked at this morning about fearing God rather than man, right? Daniel's not alone. And notice as well, Daniel sees that this God, the ancient of days, is going to set things right. Why, does, why do I say that? Notice, the books were opened. The books were opened. The judge had the books open. Um, what does that mean? Well, this, this is a courtroom, and he is the judge, and he is coming to judge all injustice and all the wrongs that have been communicated and done to God's people. And it's just unveiling in verses 9 and 10, which puts uh, verses 11 and 12 in perspective. I looked in because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Again, the beast represents all the powers opposed to the living God and to God's people. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so this would have been a deeply encouraging word for God's people. And it should be a, an encouragement to us as Christians. So there's this simultaneous kingdom that is hidden behind the earthly kingdoms, all right? And that simultaneous kingdom that is hidden behind the earthly kingdom is the one that's actually in control. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. And that kingdom will ultimately destroy all rival kingdoms. Now, in 13, there's another unveiling. Um, but that is taking place at the same time as verses 7 to 12. So I want you to think a split-screen TV. You got your two favorite teams on the television, and you're watching them. It's going on at the same time, okay? And so th this is going to remind us um, to gaze beyond what we see in the here and now 
and to keep our focus here into God's throne room. Many of you bring circumstances in this room tonight that seem almost overwhelming, all right? Um, In light of eternity, those circumstances are small. They're small. But small objects near the eye can make larger objects look invisible, all right? And so these smaller objects compared to what we're reading about this ancient of days needs to be removed for the moment. So Daniel 7 is helping us see the larger object, and that is the ancient of days who sits in throne. Um, Furthermore, these beasts coming out of this chaotic sea, um, these, these are from another world. But notice this glorious unveiling of the Son of Man. Uh, these, this unveiling is about one who doesn't come from the sea. He comes from the clouds. Look with me in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So he's not like a beast. He's like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And so he's coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you know that 70 times in the Old Testament, clouds are associated with the presence and the coming of Yahweh. So this one, like the Son of Man, is like Yahweh himself. Uh, He is equal in, in dignity and worth and essence to the Ancient of Days, but he's distinct from the Ancient of Days. And, and this person, this Son of Man, will be given dominion and he will be given authority that is going to replace all of the human authorities that is expressed in these beasts. And so this text tells us to forget about the chaos in the world and its bestial system and focus our gaze on the Ancient of Days and on the Son of Man. They have mortgaged nothing of their rule over history, in spite of what we may see. And seeing this behind world history may not keep us from pain, but it should keep us from panicking. It's, it's just a, not a good witness when God's people panic because we already know the end of the story. I mean, think about, think about just as a, as a an, if you're a sports fan and, and someone tells you that your favorite team, all right, Auburn, has won the Iron Bowl. You didn't get to watch it, but they tell you Auburn won. It was a kick sex, all right? And so you watch this game, you already know that you won. Are you going to be anguished when Alabama gets ahead? No, you already know that you've won. That's what Daniel is giving us here. 
This is for our good so that we don't get discouraged. Well, at this point, at this point, Daniel, unlike earlier visions, needs an interpreter. I don't know why he needed an interpreter here, but maybe because of the complexities uh, of this unveiling, this, uh, this revelation. That brings us to the final unveiling, the a glorious unveiling of the restored saints. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. And for me, I believe that these represent all of history. These are just representative kings and beasts. And by the way, what a remarkable prophecy because there, there's so much evidence that Daniel was written many centuries before these kings arose, at least most of these kings. The Babylon had already arisen. Uh, but it's remarkable how, about these prophecies. So he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High. Now, who are the saints? You and me. All believers shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, ever, and ever. That's our future. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and clothes of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the, the, other, ten, the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the ancient of days came, judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Amen. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. We shall be different from all the kingdoms. Again, I believe this is Rome, but I'd also believe it speaks to a more sinister future rule of a of a of an antichrist figure and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. This tells me I'm not optimistic, but I can be hopeful, right? Um, as for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. It shall be, he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, half a time. Um, because of lack of time, we can't get into what that means. Um, but the fourth beast represents the full manifestation of evil. I don't believe it's come yet. It's coming, in my estimation. And in particular, uh, the little horn and several descriptions are given of this little horn. Notice, he spoke blasphemous words against the Most High. We see all this in verse 25. Uh, there's oppression of the saints here. 
he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Uh, he changes the times, changes the times and the law, uh, perhaps banning uh, the Jewish festivals in, 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 in that day. But also, it, this is speaking of social and moral upheaval. I think we're starting to see birth pains even now. And, and I think such a, a picture uh, fits more uh, with someone that will come later than the, any emperor in the Roman history. In fact, even now across the world, um, there are various little horns who are seeking to crush the people of God. In fact, I believe they're in this very country. Little horns who are seeking to crush the people of God. I say that not to scare you because we've already seen the score. All right? It's not, it should not scare us. It should concern us. Yes, it should not scare us. And there'll be one who will come who makes all of these pale in comparison. I believe that. The man of lawlessness. The antichrist. But the last line of verse 25 is, is, a, is a word of hope. There's a limit to the oppression. Indeed, again, verse 25, for a time, times, and half a time. Whatever that means, it certainly means there's a limit to the oppression. Uh, the oppression. Indeed, verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Speaking of this little horn. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. I love that. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed but I kept the matter in my heart. What does that tell us? We need to keep this matter in our hearts. And so we see even Daniel's thoughts alarmed him. We can be alarmed. We can be um, troubled at times. Even Jesus was troubled in, in a broken world. And yet, what do we see at the end of the fourth quarter? Uh, we win the game. We win the victory. And so... The rule that has been usurped by the fourth beast is not just going to be taken back by God. It's going to be given to the people of God, which is the restoration of what was lost in the garden. We were, we were created as God's image bearers to rule, to take dominion. We saw that in Genesis 1. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, this rule is going to be restored. What does that look like? It's hard to say, but it's going to be material. It's going to be embodied. And we are going to rule as God's vice kings. And that is being restored through this son of man. Right now, we're marginalized. But this is our world. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 3. All things are yours. And we know this passage was a matter of emphasis for Jesus. Do you know that the Son of Man, that term for Jesus, which we get here in Daniel 7, was used 81 times in the Gospels. It was the term that Jesus used for himself. 
and was used for Jesus. Or they're not just coming up with that language out of the blue. They're very aware of how important Daniel 7 is in God's plans and purposes for his people. Jesus, the Son of Man, came to establish a kingdom where God would rule through his Messiah and through his restored image bearers. But ironically, unlike all the other pagan kingdoms where the king ruled by a sword and established his rule by the sword, this king would establish his rule by a cross, by a cross, and then he would be vindicated. But ironically, in this vision, what's remarkable, it's not the Son of Man who suffers. It's the saints who are suffering. So what's with that? Why isn't the Son of Man the one that's suffering? Isn't that what our gospel teaches us? Well, it does seem at face value to be contrary to the gospels, but it's not. Because what's going to unfold in God's revelatory plan is that the Son of Man is going to come and actually be our substitute. And I want you to think about Mark 9 as we close here. It's a remarkable verse because Mark 9 is picking up the language of Daniel 7. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Now, what's remarkable about that is going to be delivered right there in Mark 9:31 keep that on the board going to be delivered is the same verb that we find in Daniel 9:25 he shall be given verse 25 they shall be given into this beast hands it's the same verb all right they shall be given into the beast hands and Mark 9 says the son of man is going to be Delivered into the hands of men. And notice, he shall be given uh, into the hands of. That language is used in both accounts. It's used in Mark 9, uh, 31. Uh, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And we see it in Daniel 7, 25. They shall be given into his hand. And so the Son of Man is coming as our substitute to deliver us, all right? Um, so has this already happened? Well, yes and no. In one sense, it's already happened because he was delivered into the hands of sinful men as our substitute, and he was crushed, and God's judgment was poured out on him instead of us, and then he was raised from the grave. And then he was able to say, again from Daniel 7, all authority has been given to me. That's the promise of Daniel 7. All authority is going to be restored to the Son of Man. And so after he's raised from the grave, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, therefore, go and make disciples to all nations. Nations that are opposed. Nations that are beasts opposed to God, but you go in my authority. 
you go in my victory, all right? And so go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded. And yet, it's also clear that we wait for the consummation because evil is still here. There's still empires that are opposed to God. And so we live in the already, but the not yet. That's where we are. Listen to this verse as we close. Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Anytime you see this language in the Gospels of the Son of Man, it takes you back to Daniel chapter 7. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They're going to mourn. They're not going to, they're not going to delight in his appearing because the fulfillment of Daniel 7 is at hand when he comes. They're going to mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They're going to lament. They're going to mourn because they will recognize that his coming is decisive and it spells the end of their rule. It spells the end of their comfortable securities. And that's the great encouragement for the believers. So we still live between the times. And so today is June 4th, June 6th. Why is June 6th important, Hal? D-Day. That's exactly right. And so this is a good analogy to close. On D-Day, the Allied forces, 1944, stormed the banks of Normandy. The bloodiest battle in the history of humankind. There were many fatalities. A lot of blood was shed. But at the end of that battle, June 6th, that battle began. Guess what? The Allied forces had won the battle in principle, had won the war in principle. The back of the German army was crushed. But the war didn't end, right? And so D-Day represents the cross and the resurrection of this son of man. In May of 45, we have V-Day, V-E Day in Europe, and in August, V-J Day in Japan, where the victory is consummated. And so between V-Day, or D-Day, and V-Day, there are still battles. But here's the good news. The allied forces, the church, fights from a posture of victory. There will be battles, like the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge was a tough battle, a bloody battle. But the allied forces were fighting from a posture of victory because we are more than conquerors as they awaited V-Day, the consummation when the war would officially end. That's where we are. We have all the hope in the world because the Son of Man has emerged victorious over the grave. Let's not be frustrated. Let's not be discouraged. Yes, we need to hate sin. We need to hate sin. We need to hate it so much. Here's what we do. We don't withdraw. We take the gospel to the sinners. We take the gospel to the culture. It's their only hope. And so we hate the sin, but we love those who are enslaved to it. 
And we bring that gospel to bear. And like we said this morning, you denounce the fear of man that is so a part of our broken DNA, all right? You die to it. And you live and put on the Lord Jesus Christ in the fear of God. And you take that gospel and you proclaim the king has emerged victorious. You need to bow to the king because he's coming again. And when he comes, he's coming as a judge to consummate what he's already started. That's God's word for us tonight. As Josh and the musicians come forward, um, we also want to give those of you an opportunity who recognize, man, if that's the future, my future is not bright, but it can be. We want to give you an opportunity to bow to King Jesus, the Son of Man. We want to give you an opportunity to humble yourself and to repent of your sin and to trust in his provision for your sin, the cross. All you have to do is repent and trust. The Bible says your sins will be forgiven and you will be delivered from this present age. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.